0: Tired of ads interrupting your favorite show? Good news. Ad-free listening on Amazon Music is included with your Prime membership. Just head to amazon.com slash ad-free lifestyle to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Enjoy thousands of ACAST shows ad-free for Prime subscribers. Some shows may have ads.
1: Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right.
2: I'm Caroline Donahue, a life coach who works with writers, and I'm here to tell you this is your year. It's time to stop waiting and start writing.
0: This is episode 51. My guest this week is Ruby Warrington, who is a British journalist, consultant, and entrepreneur who currently lives in Brooklyn, New York. She was formerly Features Editor on the UK Sunday Times Style magazine, and in 2013 she launched The Numinous a conscious lifestyle platform that bridges the gap between the mystical and the mainstream. Ruby works regularly with brands on a consultancy basis, and her writing features and publications on both sides of the Atlantic. Her first book, Material Girl, Mystical World, is out this month with HarperCollins. Meanwhile, other projects she's a part of include Sober Curious event series, Club Soda NYC, and Moon Club, a monthly mentoring program for spiritual activists. It was a delight to talk to Ruby, and uh, not only because we've both um, had encounters with Burning Man, as she talks about in the book, but to think about the kind of spiritual evolution that's happening right now where people who formerly would have stayed away from such topics are actually very interested in learning more about them. And I think her book is a wonderful primer for anyone who's a little bit spiritual curious. Um, It was great to talk to her about the movement from journalism towards something that feels like an edgier topic and the process of writing the book. So here we go with Ruby Warrington.
2: Hey, Ruby, thanks so much for coming on the show.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me.
2: I am really excited to talk about your book, of course. Um, <laughs> I'm sure you are too, but I'm also excited to talk about the whole journey that brought you to the book because you started out as a journalist in fashion and then made this whole journey that you talk about in Material Girl Mystical World. So can we you know, dial back a bit and start when you first started writing in, in journalism? And then go through that little process to getting to where you are now.
1: Well, yeah, like you say, it's been quite a journey. <laughs> I mean, it's interesting when I first um, went to I went to London College of Fashion to study fashion styling, and I didn't really I just knew I wanted to work in magazines. I and, and thinking that I was going to be a stylist and style magazine shoots. But when I got onto that course, uh, journalism was a component of the course that I did. And I just found that I really enjoyed and had a sort of natural aptitude for expressing myself in the written word. And so ended up focusing on journalism as part of that course and even started writing features for kind of like hip magazines in London. And this is like back at the end of the 90s, <laughs> while I was still at college even. So yeah, I guess I I just wanted to work in magazines. It wasn't necessarily even fashion by that point as well. I kind of got to to fashion styling school or magazine school um, and actually had found that I was really interested in writing about all sorts of culture and trends, I guess. Fashion was my way in um, and, I, and I worked as a style editor for a, a few different magazines before finding my way to a job as features editor at the sunday times style magazine which a bit like the new york times tea magazine kind of fashion and lifestyle is the overarching sort of theme i guess but as features editor i got to write about all kinds of different things um and that was really really what i enjoyed i suppose just being tapped into kind of like social trends and what everyone was talking about as much as what everyone was wearing i guess if that makes sense yes absolutely and so from there I found myself sort of three years into that job, bearing in mind I've been working in magazines and newspapers in the UK for about sort of 14, 15 years by this point, in what represented to me at the time the kind of apex of my ambitions as a journalist. It was a very respected title. I had a really good role there. Um, There was a lot of kudos that came with it. But I was actually more and more aware of just feeling deeply Unfulfilled in the role, and really kind of questioning, you know, is this is this really all I have to contribute to the world? I suppose um, it was a weekly magazine. It was kind of like do one issue, forget about it, on to the next thing, and it felt like nothing I was really working on had any kind of like permanence or lasting meaning in the world, um, and this was leading to feelings of kind of anxiety, boredom, frustration. And also guilt, because I was really like, wow, I've, I've really kind of like got it all on paper going on here, you know, and I was unhappy. Um, and that's when I really started thinking about what I did want to focus on and what I did want to learn more about and what I wanted to contribute to the world. And the subject I came to was astrology, which had always been a passion of mine in the on the kind of sidelines, you know, very much in my personal life. Um, I'd been interested in astrology since I was a young child and decided that I would, as a side project, start researching and studying astrology so that I could perhaps read people's birth charts and maybe think about that long term as something I might want to transition into. And it was through kind of delving into my astrological studies, really, that I felt like there was that my own sense of kind of existential unease and unfulfillment was actually a reflection of something wider going on in society. Bear in mind, i had been working as a kind of features journalist for for some time by now. And I had sort of a finely honed nose for the zeitgeist. Um, (laughs) and I really kind of was like, Hmm, yes, there is, this is, Once I started studying, like I said, astrology, but that kind of led into looking at other things, other sorts of ancient aspects of spirituality, tarot, um, mysticism, all these sorts of things were really kind of like lighting me up inside in a way that most of the stuff I'd been writing about in my day job really, really hadn't been. And I was like, hmm, I think there's a kind of a gap in the market here for all of the people in my kind of fashion magazine world who I know would be super interested in all of these subject matters but which are often presented in a way that's not particularly modern, aspirational or appealing. And so that's where the idea for The Numinous began to form. And it took me a little while to start working on it because I was very attached to all of the shiny baubles of my fashion magazine career, but ended up moving to New York in 2012 and sort of being asked by the universe to leave all of that behind and sort of make a fresh start for myself, which is when I really started to begin thinking about the numinous as something I was gonna actually work on and put out into the world. And now who we are five years later and I have a site with multiple contributors and I run, you know, workshops and events and I've written a book on the subject and it's become a whole other beast, you know? Yes, so I love, I loved reading about that, that there
2: was, mm, am I gonna do this, am I not? Am I, you know, I am feeling very secure in this job I've had for a long time and then this move happens that sort of dislocates you in a way. And how easy was it for you to assimilate that and kind of reconfigure yourself? Did being in a totally different country in a different city entirely change that? But New York is still quite style oriented. So I'm wondering about that transition.
1: It was a very difficult transition. I mean, when I first, so we moved to New York because my husband got a job over here. And I think growing up as a Londoner You always sort of have New York in your sights as like the next place that you might go. It kind of it kind of seems like, you know, this bigger, badder, glossier version of London (laughs) in a way. And so it was a bit it was kind of a no brainer as much as it would mean for me leaving my full time job, leaving the career that I had worked so hard to kind of build behind the excitement of the move to New York overrode all of that. But it was only when I arrived that I realised how much of my sort of sense of self worth I'd actually been getting from my career as well, um, and it definitely took me. I, and I, and as such, I kind of like really scrabbled to cling onto that, and really tried, you know, when spent all of my time and energy on trying to write for similar titles here in the US and to maintain my career as a freelance writer writing for titles in the UK, and that took about a year. But it was really kind of fraught and it was fueled by this need to kind of like, like I said, sort of hold on to this, the status that I achieved in my, in my career at home and not really from a passion for what I was doing. I, the, the idea for this idea for the numinous really was kind of eating away at me by this point, like begging me to give it some attention and to put some work into it. Then it took about another year for me to actually go, OK, this idea is not going away. And yes, here I am actually with a clean slate with a whole new city to explore which happened to be one of the first places outside of LA I guess that was really that this sort of like this new take on the mystical was really beginning to bubble up and so a lot of the people I would meet would be into shamanism or hosting really chic sound baths at their loft apartments. and it was kind of like oh this world that I was that I had sense was kind of like just waiting to be given a platform is actually kind of here in New York happening. So yeah, it was having that break. And I think for anyone who's had the opportunity to go and work in a different city or even go and work overseas, it definitely brings with it the sense of this is a fresh start. And as such, I can reinvent myself to an extent. So once I I was able to embrace that and say, okay, well, I can't cling on to and try and make work my old London career here in New York. Once I just kind of embraced the new start, things started falling into place very quickly in terms of the numinous getting established, and you know a long list of people wanting to contribute to it and all sorts of other things. So, but it definitely, it definitely took a leap of faith.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So. How did you start to build the site? Because you had written obviously for other magazines, but did you have this fantasy the whole time you were you were writing for other magazines about well, if I had my magazine, it would be like this. And how was it to start to put the numinous together?
1: It was very daunting. I mean, my original idea was to was was to have a print magazine because that's the world that I came up in. But obviously, simultaneously to this. This sort of transformation in my circumstances everything was moving very rapidly online and obviously without any funding to to launch a print magazine which takes a huge amount of initial investment I knew I'd be starting a blog so it was kind of like getting to grips with WordPress and trying to find people help me do that and then oh I have to find all of the images too so it was just a huge learning curve you know quite daunting at first but The beauty of of having an online business is that you can very quickly amend any mistakes that you make, (laughs) you know, unlike with a print print magazine where once it's out there, it's done and that's it. Um, So it was a lot of trial and error. I met, was introduced to, as happens in New York, one thing I love about this town is that everyone is very quick and very generous to make connections And so I met um, a designer who helped me kind of like get everything up and running and and um, get the site looking sort of how I wanted it to quite quickly. And he was great to work with. But no, in terms of yes, I mean, there was definitely a degree of satisfaction in terms of having creative control. But at the same time, the additional responsibility that comes with that was quite daunting too. you know, it was like the buck really stopped at me. And so all the time I'd been working on magazines in the UK, I'd never really put myself forward to be an editor or an editor in chief. And I think part of that was my fear of like, okay, well, if I'm in the in the top spot, then I'm the one making all the decisions. But as an entrepreneur, essentially, your day, everything is about you making the right decision, and that that's quite that's quite daunting too. So that's been. Yeah, that's been a process too, getting comfortable with with that, you know.
2: How soon did you know that there was going to be a book? Because in reading reading the book, I see that the intro was written and it says 2013 there.
1: So Mm -hmm.
2: it seems like the book idea came fairly quickly.
1: Well, the intro wasn't written in 2013. In the finished copy, um, rather than the, the early manuscript that you've seen, in the finished book, that the date goes up to the beginning of the intro because I'm actually describing an experience ah. I had which happened in October 2013. I got actually approached at the end of 2014 when the site had been up for little over a year by the, a, a, an editor at HarperCollins who had been looking, she works for a spiritual imprint there called Harper Elixir And she'd just been looking for new voices in this space and had come across the numinous somehow on her Google searches and reached out to me and said, you know, I think you have a unique voice in this field and the way you're presenting the subject matter is very different and appealing. And do you have a book proposal in you? And I kind of got really excited, but filed it away because I didn't necessarily and was kind of like, "Hmm, what do I do with this? (laughs) I don't want to mess this up. This sounds like it could be really interesting. And then... um, Very shortly after that, a a friend in the UK reached out to me about representing me as an agent. She had recently set up an agency over there. Um, Similarly, it was kind of like, you know, you're carving out a bit of a niche for yourself here. Could we work with you? And I was like, yes. And it's really good timing because I've just been approached about a potential book. So they then helped me get a proposal together. We pitched it and I ended up Signing a deal with HarperCollins in around this time, it was like March 2015. So it's two years since I signed the deal. And I actually would have written the introduction. I wrote the introduction as part of the proposal. So it would have been like January 2015, um, which was about just probably a year and a half after I'd set started the Numinous and got, got it up in the form that it is now. That's an amazing period of time to be able to accomplish that. I mean, yeah, I was... I was obviously thrilled that Libby, my editor, had found the site and that she felt so passionately about it and so inspired by it. And working with her has been incredible. And I think because she, I feel extremely fortunate because she obviously approached me because she had found something that she really loved in The Numinous. And she feels very, as a result, attached. She has a very personal attachment to the book and has given me a lot of, given me in my manuscript a lot of TLC I guess. So yeah, I've worked very closely with her on the manuscript which has been wonderful and I know having spoken to other authors that's not always the case. The whole thing felt felt very meant to be I have to say. I mean there's something there's things like in the UK and I had no idea about this. HarperCollins is owned by the same people who own the Sunday Times. And actually their offices are in the same building that I used to work in when I worked at style magazine. So the first time I went to have a meeting with Harper Collins in the UK I was going back to the old office that I used to work in but kind of like 10 floors up oh my god and then my that's editor wild. my editor the woman who's ended up being my editor there she actually has a daughter named Ruby who has the same birthday as me what I mean it's just like these kind of crazy serendipities which as I write about in my book are examples or glimpses at the kind of like universal cosmic order in action and I, I've always like my whole life really put a lot of stock into those sorts of meaningful coincidences as little signposts that I'm on the right path, you know, and making the right decisions. That's amazing. It was really, it's really amazing. (laughs) So yeah, I felt it did feel very um, meant to be in a way not which is not all to say that it hasn't been a huge labor to to actually get this book out there writing it's undoubtedly the most difficult thing I've ever done.
2: Earlier on, and in the book, you talk about this this feeling of it not being enough, when you Mm. were writing about fashion and and writing, you know, exclusively on those topics. How Mm. has that feeling evolved as you're writing about kind of a wider range of things like, you know, tarot, astrology, um, healing, kind of ideas, but from a more modern perspective? Like, how has that feeling about the writing and exploration changed? I actually
1: interviewed this incredible activist called Mickey Halpin the other day who uh, she's a contributing editor for Lena Dunham's Lenny Letter Mm. and has an amazing newsletter called Action Now and she was an editor at Seventeen Magazine back in the 90s and she was saying how nowadays she, she only really does what she calls advocacy journalism meaning that she only really writes about causes and things that she cares about or that she feels need to be known about in the world. And I wouldn't quite say I've gone that far in terms of only writing about causes, quote unquote. But at the same time, I feel that the work I'm doing now and the things I'm writing now and everything I'm putting out into the world is designed to have a positive impact, whether that's on an individual's life or you know, on thought on opinions or you know, belief systems, et cetera, et cetera. So I definitely feel, and particularly with the book, this has really come into high relief for me, the sense that everything I'm doing actually does have some kind of meaning is meaningful to people and has a bit of a, has a purpose in the world. And you know, you've read the book, which on the, I've been describing it as a, um, as a manifesto for spiritual activists disguised as a glamorous romp into the now age. So it looks all, <laughs> it looks all kind of like fun and it's like, here's how we do astrology and this is what Tara is really about and blah, blah. But you've read it. The deeper message is really like, well, the reason we embrace all of these practices and the reason we investigate all of these spiritual philosophies is so that we can really tap into what we're here to do as as individuals, you know, um, and tap into what we're here to bring to the planet so that we can help each other and help humanity to evolve in a happy, healthy, um, holistic way.
2: Definitely. I love that description. Mm. I, I of course, love the word romp. Anything that's a romp, (laughs) I'm
1: I'm down for. (laughs) Well, this is the thing. It's like, I think that world events are really showing us that we, it is on each and every one of us to really kind of like step up and take responsibility for our actions and to, to bring whatever good we can into the world. But my whole feeling about that is, well, let's make that sound like an exciting adventure. Let's make that feel like a calling rather than something we are duty bound to do or something that's going to result in any kind of like self-sacrifice, you know? So yeah, I'm all for bringing the fun and the adventure to all of our spiritual endeavors.
2: Yeah, it's funny because as you were talking about this kind of spiritual seeking community and how New York felt more similar to London and the and the community that you're thinking of and that LA does maybe, and I can see the thread in all of them because I live in LA and I've, Right. I've lived in New York too, but I also lived in San Francisco. And mm. it's interesting to me that San Francisco is not the first one that everybody's thinking of. Um, because I think San Francisco to me feels more like the, the new age than the now age, so to speak, at least, um, interesting. it's been, I mean, it's been over 10 years since I've been in LA and left San Francisco, but I do feel like Like the 60s are still kind of going in San Francisco. (laughs) Of course, it's been 10 years, so it may be different. But I do feel like LA, in a way, is catching up in a sense that you are allowed, like you talk about in the book, to, you know, want to dress kind of in tune with fashion but also to pursue something spiritual that it isn't an either
1: or experience anymore what's interesting about san francisco i actually i went there in 2000 the year 2000 i believe or maybe it was was 2001 for the for new year and i went back recently at the end of last year my publisher harper elixir is actually based in san francisco and i yeah i guess it has like the whole hate ashbury thing is kind of like part of the brand right it's part of Brand San Fran, the whole idea of kind of like the hippies on hate Street. So yeah, I don't know. I can't really speak. I can't speak. I haven't spent much time there, um, I, so I can't really speak to how the now age is being embraced. Um, but certainly, it's not. It's not a. It's not a city that necessarily comes up regularly on the the newsletter that we share every Thursday. We compile a list of events, kind of like high vibe happenings that are happening all over the all over the country and branching out into the UK as well, and sometimes further afield in Europe, where most of our readers are. And San Francisco comes up very rarely, actually. Although I do think what's interesting is the the intersection of spirituality and tech. And I kind of feel like the, the, the tech industry or the, the tech community is actually very open-minded when it comes to a lot of these more spiritual philosophies about our interconnectedness and Also, because so many of the practices when you're talking about things like meditation, yoga, you know, performance enhancing or healing foods are actually very appealing to entrepreneurs and people who are invested or seeking ways to be kind of like more effective humans. And the tech industry is very focused on that.
2: Yeah, definitely. Because it makes sense if you're if you're building systems all the time, which essentially you are in tech, you're building Mm -hmm. connections that you know, seeing webs and connectivity in other platforms or in other ways of looking at the world, it makes sense that that would feel familiar to them.
1: Absolutely. And I also talk about, uh, you know, a lot how I think the reason so many of these ancient practices or ancient human technologies, as some people I know would describe things like the tarot, for example, are sort of seeming more appealing, is because as our lives become more entwined with technology, we're seeking more ways to be reminded of our humanity. And I feel like if you're working in the tech industry, that must become more and more pronounced, you know, the idea that I am not a machine and yet I'm trying to keep up with machines and wait, these human practices can actually help me kind of function better and, and feel better in the world, you know?
2: Absolutely. For anyone who writes a book, I think it's an interesting thing to think about because your book will exist as an ebook and then you've done an audiobook as well and mm. also a physical object and that those are three very different ways to interact with your ideas.
1: Yeah, very different, exactly. Yeah, it's very, um, it's interesting recording my, I was talking to someone earlier, recording the audiobook. I thought it would be very emotional because there's some very personal subject matter in here and even, you know, having read the material, hundreds of times over there are still certain chapters that when I read them to myself will make I'll cry but I and I was kind of thinking oh god I'm doing this audiobook and it's just going to be me like in tears the whole way through but actually it was a very unemotional experience it was a completely different way of interacting with the material and with the words yeah
2: that's so fascinating I'm always fascinated by authors who read their own audiobooks versus those who choose to you know, have someone else read it. And I always Mm. love hearing the author's voice. So that's nice to know that you'll be reading it.
1: Yeah, I was really happy that they asked me to because like I said, it's it is some of the material is very personal. And I just think it just makes sense to have me voicing it. And I wanted to also it felt like a. it felt strangely like a completion as well and I love the fact obviously coming from a mystical perspective that I read the book in the last week of Pisces season which is the 12th sign of the zodiac before this week coming into Aries and kind of like (laughs) starting you know starting the new year it really felt like a a closure in a way
2: definitely yeah perfect just the very end of the cycle Mm. so one of the things you talked about in the book that I love was this idea of healing and not healing from something being wrong with you, so to speak, but just having full access to yourself. And I think that's a concept that is really great to think of in the context of writing as well. So I'm wondering if you could say more about that idea.
1: Well, yeah, I guess, you know, when you hear the word healing, it's very easy for the brain to automatically go to healing something that is broken or healing something that is painful. Um, When I think in the kind of spiritual or now age community, the idea of healing is almost like um, what can I do? What practices can I embrace? What beliefs can I look at? What conversations can I have that are going to help me just feel more like a complete and whole version of me? Um, So healing being about really coming into a sense of wholeness, which can feel painful if there are parts of yourself that have been suppressed for any reason you know like emotional any emotional traumas that you might have suffered or even ancestral traumas that you might be carrying the healing process can be painful or feel like you are healing a pain but the idea is not that you're necessarily fixing something more that you are um, more that you're sort of bringing yourself into wholeness and bringing pieces of you back I suppose and in terms of that in relation to the writing process I mean the writing this book was an incredibly healing journey for me because there are so many experiences that we all I think just kind of assimilate and we you know maybe we maybe we do some therapy around it maybe we don't I haven't ever really been a big kind of I, I, I haven't really ever um, visited therapists my month my mother is a psychotherapist funnily enough she's a huge fan of that kind of work but it's never really appealed to me or, or, or felt right for me so a lot of a lot of situations or experiences I've had I hadn't really done that much processing around I suppose I just kind of like dealt with them on my own way and moved on and writing them was definitely a way of processing them and speaking of my mum, like there's a lot of talk of our relationship in the book it brought up so much for me about my relationship to her and how my early life with her had kind of like formed my decisions going forward so yeah in a way it was kind of like Self-therap- self-therapy writing the whole thing you know yeah absolutely
2: well I mean I think there is this I mean there's a number of people Joan Didion being one of them and I think Flannery O'Connor were the other one who said something along the lines of I don't know what I think until I write it down and mm. then writing can help you figure it out I mean I almost felt like having like little aha moments with you um mm. reading the book, like talking about how your mother really loves to talk about things and looking at her chart and seeing that you kind of like to keep things a little bit more to yourself and she really wants to talk about them and how that interacted. Mm. It is amazing to think of how helpful it is to have some sort of external tool that can depersonalize an experience a little bit. It seems like yeah. that's so freeing and that so many of the the tools that you're talking about in the book are ones that can give you that kind of experience.
1: Exactly. A lot of it's about just getting some perspective. Astrology, I love for the fact that it can give you this perspective. You almost kind of like zoom up to, to sit among the planets and kind of look at you can look at your situation or your birth chart or your relationships from that perspective. And it gives you this necessary distance, yeah, from the emotional intensity of of an experience. So, yeah, it's funny. I never really... both considering I'm a writer, but also because I'm a writer, have been a big proponent of journaling. Um, And I know a lot of people find journaling to be extremely helpful in terms of processing whatever situations they're going through. But I think because I've always written for a living, the thought of sitting down to write more (laughs) has never really been (laughs) that appealing to me. But it's definitely something I have found myself drawn to more since writing the book, because I've realized the value of writing for writing's sake, writing for the sake of processing, rather than writing with any other kind of like goal in mind, you know?
2: Yes. And for my
1: mom, exactly. She has a Gemini moon. She loves to talk. It's like her thing. She could talk for days.
2: (laughs) Maybe you'd be better off writing letters or
1: something. Yes. I mean, in a way, my goodness, my book was like writing her the letter of my life, you know, and giving her that she actually read the very first manuscript before it was fully kind of edited and tidied up. And giving that to her was really um, the most incredible gift for both of us. Just, just huge.
2: (laughs) That's amazing. I think it's wonderful when those things allow for, you know, expanded awareness. And, you know, of course, I'm sitting here in Los Angeles, which has a certain amount of awareness of these things. You're in New York and have been in London. Like, has there been any pushback or has anyone been surprised by your choice to go into these topics or have you had any kind of difficulties in sort of changing from being in the fashion world to being in a more spiritual area
1: interestingly i i contacted um a an online site called the pool in the uk today um i'd reached out to the editor already and she said oh yes we've received your book i've handed it to this the features editor can contact with contact her we'd love to you know, have you write something for us about the book, etc. And I emailed her and I'm waiting to respond because her reply was, lovely to hear from you, just to let you know, we're generally quite cynical about all things mystical, so keep that in mind. <laughs> and I, it's funny, when I, when I was thinking about going into this promo period, I was expecting a lot more of that kind of response than I have had. Um, and I think had I even been doing this three years ago, I might have experienced that more. But I think through, even through something as simple and as um, entry-level, well, depending how you look at it, as meditation, for example, the fact that meditation has become so much more mainstream, even over the past sort of three, four years, has really opened people's minds to a more mystical mindset. Um, but certainly, yes, I, I experience it all the time. And I think I mention it in the book, you know, I, when I start talking about what I do, I'm often, I'm, I'm very interested to read people's body language before they actually respond, (laughs) because a lot of the time I can just get this sense of a bit of a, oh, really? You're one of those? (laughs) Oh, we're going to go there, are we? And certainly, you know, I've had some kind of quite angry is the wrong word, but just quite kind of spirited discussions with people at weddings and things about, you know, is, is reincarnation a thing or like, you know, these sorts of things, but generally, I'm, I'm happy to have the debate. And I'm honestly, I'm not here to like try and make anyone believe anything. I believe that we're all entitled to have our own beliefs and form our own opinions. And just because somebody doesn't believe in astrology doesn't mean I'm not going to be their friend.
2: <laughs> yeah, I think I think there has been a lot more interest coming up. And then I'm seeing more I mean, to me, like talking about meditation in Los Angeles, it's like, you know, it's the same thing as like, oh, did you have dinner last night? It's just like, what's your meditation practice? But I know that for a lot of the world, that's more far out. But Mm. I think about books coming out like Dan Harris's 10% Happier Mm. and Mm -hmm. hearing about his experience being in the press and that people were just shocked you know that Mm. he would do that and are you going to get soft and it was just so fascinating to me to see that perspective and Mm. so I was curious about your experience as being part of the press which just sounds so different
1: yes and no I think I mean there are definitely um kind of friends in the UK who are editors and whatever who maybe just don't ask me the questions and And then some who are much more open-minded and willing to go there. In the UK, they're really into the idea of witches. Like, everyone wants me to comment on stories they're writing about witches and, like, women reclaiming the word witch, (laughs) which is kind of, which is an interesting thing that's sort of, like, taken hold there a bit, I suppose. So, yeah, like I said, I'll be very interested to see how the conversations go. And I think because, because I've been so immersed in this world for the past four years, say, it actually surprises me when people are, um, are perhaps not so open-minded, not even open-minded about it, but perhaps not so knowledgeable about these subjects. And I have to remind myself that, oh, yeah, okay, yes, this still isn't like fully mainstream, you know? My, what, myself and one of my contributors, Alexandra Roxo, have started a new mem- monthly membership called Moon Club, where we host virtual moon rituals online and we talk about astrology and we have... Spiritual activists come and do interviews with us and things like this. Um, And we've been really interested. A a part of the reason for launching it was to make these practices and conversations more accessible to people who were perhaps living in communities where there just wasn't access to the information or the community didn't really even exist. And we've got members now from all over the world, from Australia, all over the UK, from Beirut, from all over Canada, all over the U.S., Um, places that you wouldn't necessarily expect to be at the forefront of the now age. One of the things too, I love the thing about the witches, by the way, but uh, (laughs) that's
2: great. The other thing that that struck me in what you said in the book that I I keep thinking about was sort of this division that some people see between, you know, scientific inquiry and spiritual inquiry and how you framed it as the difference between the how and the why. And Mm. I just loved that. And found it really um, validating and exciting to think about. So I'm wondering if you could Mm. say a little more about that difference for people to hear.
1: Well, I think that you could look at the way modern society has structured and where it has got us to. And very much of it has been about the how do we do this? How do we make more stuff? How do we get here? How do we how, how, how? And I think we've kind of got to a point where there's so many systems in place now, it's almost like afforded us a bit more space to inquire as to, but why? But what's the point of all this? What's the point of having all of this stuff? What's the point of, you know, having our societies set up in this way? Um, And why? And why? And why? And I guess I've always been a why person And I think my parents, too, as much as my dad is hugely cynical, particularly when it comes to astrology, (laughs) although I'm winning him around. I'm winning him around. And he read after he read my after he read the first chapter, he emailed me devastated that he doesn't know his time of birth. (laughs) So we can't can't calculate his rising sign. Oh, no. (laughs) Do you have a guess? Um, Well, we've 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 you so it changes every 2 hours or so right. so you can actually kind of cast several charts and see which one feels the most <laughs> feels the most relevant one of his his possibles is aquarius rising which would kind of make sense because that's definitely the devil's advocate <laughs> yes um, Yes, I think that, you know, our and and also, you know, we're seeing many of our kind of like modern systems actually really not working and not serving the population as we would best like them or hope and hopes that they could and certainly not serving the planet. And so I think that again has led to much more of this kind of existential inquiry of like, well, why and what how can we make this? How can we make this better? You know?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I just think it's a I think it's an important question because I think it's very easy to go you know in one direction or the other and to think that people you know live in one direction or the other like if you're super into spiritual stuff you just disregard science or if you're super into Mm -hmm. science then you just ignore that rather than seeing them as two different and perfectly valid questions
1: exactly I think that Balance, like everyone's obsessed with finding balance, right? I talk as well in the book about the left and the right-hand hemispheres of the brain, and the, the left hemisphere, which is the problem-solving, logical side of the brain, is given very much given a lot of airtime by modern society. The right hand, the right side of the brain, which is where fantasy, wonder, or sensation, like imagination, lives, is not really given so much credibility. And actually, as human beings, we need to find ways to integrate and and live in and exist in both sides of the brain, you know, in both sides of our being, which could also in ancient spiritual traditions be described as the yin and yang or the shi and the shakti.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's not just about the healing of us as individuals, although, of course, that ends up making a big difference for the whole. But I think
1: as a society, we can look at like, well, what systems are just not present? Exactly, exactly. And often the systems that are not present are the more collaborative, feeling, nurturing, feminine, yin, right brain systems. (laughs) I mean, I think that's one of the
2: things I love about the book is it's one, I, I think about books for people who are maybe a little bit newer to these subjects and thinking, hmm, I might want to check this out. And your book has like a lovely bright pink cover. It's very friendly and um, has sort of a, they get to follow you in as you start to Mm. explore these things more seriously. And Mm. it doesn't have the intimidating factor of like, yes, I've been doing this since I was six months old and I know all (laughs) of it and you're never going to catch up and forget it. You've missed the boat.
1: Well, exactly, because that's not my truth. And I even state in the introduction, I'm not claiming to be any kind of a guru. I've just kind of like trained all of my finely honed journalistic sensibilities onto a world in an area of inquiry that I find deeply meaningful on a personal level, and I'm now sharing that with the world. So, yeah, that's that's the aim of the book, and I'm really happy it came across to you that way. Thank you. It
2: did. It absolutely <laughs> did. I mean, it does seem like the friendly introduction to Mm. a more spiritual approach
1: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. well that's a part of that's what this has always been about for me is about kind of saying this stuff isn't weird this stuff isn't woo-woo like this stuff is your birthright we've just been taught that it doesn't really matter um, when actually it really really does and I think
2: for those who are pursuing creative processes like writing it's almost at Your peril that you ignore sort of more right brain practices like meditation and so on because we're so it's like we have a giant bicep on the the left side Mm -hmm. with all of that Mm -hmm. and a really weak one on the other side and then we wonder why people get writer's block or are scared Mm. to tell
1: stories. Or why people get burnt out, you know, if you're trying, if you're like giving yourself deadlines to like, and I know this, because I did this to myself while writing my book a 1000 words a day for four months straight. Yep, seven days a week. That's like a fast track to burnout. (laughs) And whenever I found myself getting into that kind of like, Oh, got to get this done. I would make sure that I then took a weekend out to just go and do some things in nature, or like feed the right brain part of myself you know and it's when my meditation practice really kind of like became a non-negotiable too absolutely so Mm.
2: I just want to ask you as we as we wrap up what practices did you involve like did you consult astrology in terms of when and how you were writing or did it kind of were you just writing about it I'm always curious when people write about these kinds of spiritual practices, how they involve them in the actual process of the writing about them. It sort of ends up going around in a circle a little bit. (laughs)
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm obviously absolutely devastated that the chief promo period and actual launch date are happening during Mercury retrograde. (laughs) I I definitely, definitely didn't plan that. Mercury comes out of retrograde the day after my book comes out in the US. So there's that. Because, you know, you can't necessarily plan these things. The, the pub date, so the pub date was originally scheduled for, oh my goodness, tomorrow, March 22nd. <laughs> um, and I, I was thrilled because it was going to be an Aries baby. I'm an Aries. I'm like, yes, this is so fitting. It's perfect. And they actually really worked with me on that. I was very excited about. But then, of course, you know, their systems take over and they're like, no, it has to come out in May now. So it's now coming out in Mercury retrograde. But there we go. So, I don't know. i'm I'm a when it comes to um, using a practice, say like astrology to plan and map events, I'm actually a firm believer in divine timing and that everything will happen as and when it is supposed to. Um, so yeah, i'm I'm even confident that the mercury retro retrograde, during my promo period is going to bring up all, ki- bring out all kinds of people from the woodwork who are just dying to help me promote my book, who I haven't heard from from years.
2: <laughs> yeah, because the Mercury Retrograde is also a period of reflection and looking inward, so people may be even more interested in your book yes. than they would have been yes. at other times. Exactly, exactly.
1: But, you know, things like, should I work with this agent or this agent? Yes, I would consult the tarot because why not? These tools are there at our disposal. Whether or not I go with what they tell me is on me. You know, I still get to make the final call. It's just
2: simply having more information. And I'm always mm. I'm always fascinated to have that information
1: mm-hmm. available. Mm. More information and more ways to tap your own gut feelings, more ways to tap your own intuition, which obviously there's a whole chapter on that, Um but yeah, we, we we generally know what's right for us. It's just that we live in such an information, an era of information overload that we're often deluged with information that has very little relevance to our lives. And so it can become harder and harder to hear the voice of your intuition. So, so much of what this book is about and what I use these practices for is ways just just to tap back into what is really the right decision for me in this moment. Absolutely. So I hope everyone
2: runs out and snatches it up because um, it really is a great book so I'm very excited to see it reach lots of people as it comes out
1: thank you so much um it's lovely to hear your feedback I'm really really thrilled you enjoyed it and hope you found it useful and yeah let's get out there
2: (laughs) yeah thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me about it thank you it was lovely speaking to you Thank you for listening to the Secret Library Podcast. The show is produced by me, Caroline Donahue, and Frederick Barry McWilliams, Jr., my tireless audio engineer. To get show notes for this episode and all other episodes, please visit secretlibrarypodcast.com. To get updates, literary love, and notification when new episodes are posted, sign up there for Footnotes, my newsletter. And to learn about life coaching with me to work on building your writing life, visit CarolineDonahue.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. Gold stars to everybody who leaves a rating and review on iTunes. We're so grateful. Until next time, happy reading.
0: Tired of ads interrupting your favorite show? Good news. Ad-free listening on Amazon Music is included with your Prime membership. Just head to amazon.com slash ad-free lifestyle to catch up on the latest episodes, Without the ads. Enjoy thousands of ACAST shows ad-free for Prime subscribers. Some shows may have ads.